This morning we are coming to a passage of scripture that is not one we approach often. With that oftentimes comes misunderstanding. But with a subject such as intimacy within marriage comes discomfort. I want to start out by saying I realize that families are in the room as we approach this text today. But I also want to say that this is God's inerrant, infallible word. And what we study today is just as valuable for the 80-year-old as it is for the 14-year-old. It's just as valuable for the married couple as it is for the single believer. My boys, my two oldest boys, who are six and four, are in the room this morning. And they're listening to the message. They will at least listen to some of it and hear these truths. And while they might not understand fully, and they might have more questions than answers, the door has been opened for them to think about these things biblically. In order to understand the background and what Paul is addressing in these verses, we must learn two words. And maybe you already know these words, but I want to go over two words with you this morning. And I want to give you two simple and imperfect illustrations to help you understand these two words. The first word is antinomianism. It's a mouthful. Antinomianism. Antinomianism takes the biblical reality of grace and being saved through our faith and reaches an unbiblical conclusion. Antinomianism says, because the spirit is separate from the flesh, I can do whatever I want in the flesh without any consequences. It says, because of grace, I can live however I want because morality doesn't matter. An imperfect illustration, because the greatest example we have is the church in Corinth. And we'll get to that in just a second. But an illustration to describe antinomianism would be a man or a woman experience the gracious gift of being a parent. And instead of saying, hey, there's responsibility in this, they deny all of that responsibility and they just have the joy of being able to be called a parent in front of them. So they get this joy of being a mom or dad and they say, oh, I don't have any obligation to actually parent or care for these kids. They are just a gift I get to enjoy however I want without any responsibility. Seems crazy. The second word we must learn is asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism runs in the direct opposite direction of antinomianism. Asceticism says the pleasure of any kind, pleasure of any kind on this earth, is bad, even if it is a gift from God. It is self-discipline to the point of not indulging in any pleasures, even God-honoring ones. The book of Colossians even uses this exact word. Colossians 2, 20 through 23 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The best and yet still imperfect illustration that I can think of for asceticism is celibacy within many branches of the Catholic Church for bishops and for priests. The requirement for bishops and priests, because they are in this respectable position in these Catholic churches, is that they must not be married. They must not have any sort of sexual relations. This is legalism. One group has taken freedom to the extreme and said, I can do whatever I want because it's the flesh and it doesn't matter. The other has said, we must not have any pleasures of any kind on this earth because it's forbidden to have any enjoyment other than God himself. Can we see the danger in both of these? Can we see the anti-gospel message in both of these? Well, this is exactly the mindset that was in Corinth. Corinth was a town filled with sexual immorality and promiscuity. We saw Paul address this sexual immorality at the end of chapter 6 that we studied last week. There was a large group of people within the church in Corinth that had not put away any old way of living. They hadn't put it to rest when they heard and responded to the gospel. They looked just like the sin-saturated world around them. They had an antinomian mindset that what they did in the flesh did not matter at all because the flesh is separate from the spirit. So they continued to indulge more and more. But there was another large group of people in this church that landed on the complete opposite side of things. You will see in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7 that this group wrote to Paul claiming it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This asceticism within the church said that even husband and wife should not be engaging in sexual relations with one another out of devotion to their God. They would go as far as to say it is bad if one continues these acts as husband and wife if they are believers. We must understand this as the reason for what Paul is about to teach in the following verses. We can't move beyond this antinomian and asceticism mindset when we're approaching these verses. In this chapter, Paul is not providing a full theology of marriage and singleness. Paul is responding to issues within the Corinthian church, and in doing so, he gives helpful principles for marriage and singleness today. We must not fall into the same lies or the same legalism that this church did, when we, and we must guard against other lies that could creep in and distort biblical marriage. As we step into verse 1, we see this church at Corinth. We see that they had correspondence with Paul about issues within the church, that they needed help understanding and handling in a God-honoring way. Paul helped establish this church. They viewed him as somewhat of a, of a spiritual father and leader that they could come to for clarity and for help. These are real occurrences that they wrote about happening within their church that Paul must provide Christ-exalting, Holy Spirit-inspired clarity for. They wrote saying, it is good, it is right, it is profitable, it is Christ-exalting, God-glorifying. 
for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It would be best, most ideal, if a man refrained from intimacy with a woman. This wasn't written for single person people only to refrain. If it had said it is good, best, most profitable for the unmarried to refrain from sexual relations, this would be true. This would be a true, good, biblical statement. But this statement from the Corinthian church was a statement for married and unmarried alike. It was not a statement to abstain from sexual immorality as Paul had said in chapter 6. If it were this, Paul would not have provided clarification. He would have said, this is true. May it be. Amen. Or a women. I'm just kidding. Not a women. If this were a statement on sex outside of marriage, Paul would have agreed completely with the statement the church was writing to him about. This act of sexual relations is an act designed by God for husband and wife to know one another as intimately as they can. And this church was holding married couples to this standard. These believers are saying, don't partake in it. No stipulations are given. Not abstain from sexual, sexual immorality, but very generally, man and woman should not have sexual relations. This can't be right. If this were true, it would be going against the rest of Scripture. Paul answers their misunderstanding, though, with three helpful principles for marriage. Three helpful principles for marriage. For marriage. I will at the outset say, and I mean this in the most loving way I can, premarital sex is always sinful. It is in no way the unforgivable sin, but it is a distortion of God's design in marriage. We rest in the righteousness of Christ for our past failures and for our future failures with sexual sin. But we also strive to love God through upholding a biblical view of marriage and sex. So this morning, I want to look at these three principles for marriage. And the first principle is in verse 2. First, Marriage is coming together. Marriage is coming together. Paul counters the misunderstanding of the Corinthians by saying in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now listen, I already said this once and I'll say it multiple more times as we go through these verses. Paul is not providing a full theology of marriage. He is responding to the misunderstanding of the Corinthian church. So Paul, when he says this in verse, in verse two, is not giving the only or even the primary reason for marriage. He is not saying the only reason or the best reason for marriage is to fulfill your sexual desires. But he is responding to this issue brought up and he's preparing the way for the following verses. One commentator says, marriage cannot be reduced to being God's escape valve for the sex drive. His purpose here is to stress the reality of the sexual temptations of singleness and to acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet in marriage. But in clarifying these misunderstandings, Paul writes, due to the fact that temptation to sin sexually is nearly inevitable because it is so prevalent, it is good, it is profitable for man and woman to join together in 
marriage. In other words, because there is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting way to pursue sex, sexual immorality can be fled from without fleeing from biblical sex. Temptation can be silenced through greater fulfillment that God has designed. Marriage is coming together of one man and one woman to silence these temptations, to step outside of God's design. Left up to my own methods, left up to my own devices, temptation to distort God's design is the only answer. Instead of saying sex between man and woman is wrong, Paul corrects to say what goes against God's design. Sexual immorality is wrong. Marriage is coming together. God's design is for one man and one woman to be bound together, unified in this way in marriage. In, in order to avoid inevitable failure in this area, in order to avoid temptation, one woman and one man can come together and know one another spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, for the glory of God and for their good. Flee from sexual immorality and cling to what is good. What a clear picture of the gospel. Through Christ, put away what will never satisfy for what is eternally better. Put away your feeble attempts at righteousness for the one who is perfectly righteous in your place. Stop settling for the lesser husbands of this world and cling to Christ who loved you despite your unfaithfulness. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. How? The temptation is too great. 1 Corinthians 6.20, glorify God in your body. How? The temptation is too great. God's design, his perfect plan. For one man and one woman to unify together, to put away temptation, and express in the deepest sense their God-given desire for one another. Paul gives such a beautiful case for marriage as coming together in in, in just verse 2. And while he's not giving a full theology of marriage, this coming together is the same teaching on marriage we see throughout Scripture. Just recently, I was asked to do premarital counseling for a previous student and his fiance. And premarital counseling is one of my greatest joys, not because I'm I'm good at it. If anything, because of my own mistakes in marriage, I'm good at pointing out what not to do. But in Genesis 2, God says it's not good for, for man to be alone. So he makes woman from man. She's called woman because she is of man. There's such unity in this statement. The whole book of Song of Solomon is devoted to marriage. If you go to Ezekiel 16, this this is one of the richest chapters in the Bible on marriage, and it's possibly my favorite passage to go to in premarital counseling. And that might seem odd. If you go to Ezekiel 16 after this sermon, it might seem odd to you that I say that. But this whole chapter is God calling out the unfaithfulness of his bride, Israel. You see him confronting their adultery, their choosing of lesser husbands. And yet he says, at the end of chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he says, I will keep my covenant with you. 
despite your unfaithfulness, despite you being the harlot, I will keep my covenant and I will be faithful. He will restore, he will restore what they have broken. Also, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, which is also from Paul. He gives deep truths about the husband being Christ and the wife being the the church. The husband giving self-sacrificing love to his bride. And the bride, seeing such self-sacrificing love, can't help but to submit to his loving leadership. Paul displays such unity with what he says in verse 2. Marriage is coming together. And this is much more than just physically coming together. While this is a great gift from God in order to flee temptation, this is not the primary purpose of marriage. Marriage is coming together of one man and one woman intimately. So first, marriage is coming together. Second principle for marriage is marriage is giving together. Marriage is giving together. Verses 3 and 4, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The husband and wife both give of themselves to one another freely. There is no tight-fistedness in this, saying it's mine. This is the exact same sacrificial love we see in Ephesians 5. The husband and the wife are open-handed. They are modeling the gospel. And they're modeling biblical marriage by the self-sacrificing love they display. The two become one flesh. There's such unity. They cling to one another, holding fast to the biblical covenant they have made together. There is no division It is my joy to serve you and to love you, says the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. I give you this full expression of my love by giving you myself. I give as though you were my own body because you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Verses three and four, by the way, are not an excuse to abuse the marriage relationship when it comes to conjugal rights. You could go to this statement and say, I can do what I want, but that's misunderstanding it. Sacrificial love is the foundation. Unity and abuse do not go together. Marriage is giving together. There is no room for abuse in that statement. Again, The husband who is pictured as Christ sacrificially loves his wife who is the church and she cannot help but respond in giving of herself in full devotion to this one who has given his full devotion to her. He would never harm her and she would never harm him. They care for one another's being to the fullest extent. The husband and wife do everything to give of their own rights and their own bodies for the sake of the other. They entrust their bodies to one another, saying, this is the sort of intimacy, this is the sort of trust, this is the sort of union we have together, because there is not a single doubt that you will uphold this trust and this unity. How can it be any different? How often in our world is this abused? 
broken marriages, abusive marriages, marriages that do anything but reflect the gospel. Calvin says, the husband surrenders the power of his own body and gives it up to his wife. How could he afterwards connect himself with another as if he were free? Biblical marriage, this union, is just that. It's unity that cannot be broken apart. It is the unity of the gospel. The husband and wife belong to one another. They give to each other as grace. They give to each other as goodness. They give as one unified flesh. Marriage is giving together. First, marriage is coming together. Second, marriage is giving together. Finally, marriage is devoting together. Marriage is devoting together. Look at verses five and six. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Paul writes to not withhold from one another. This do not deprive, this do not withhold is from the Greek word apostorete. It's an emphatic command. It carries the idea of not cheating someone out of what is properly his or hers, that belongs to them. Don't deprive the goodness and the grace discussed in these previous verses. Because of an argument, do not deprive Instead, seek to restore as though you are being deprived of your own self, your own body, because that's what you are. Out of self-sacrificing love and submission, do not withhold, give. But there's one exception, and we need to pay very close attention to this ex exception. There's one reason to withhold for a limited time. And again, this must be done in unity. This is a decision made together. This is not indefinitely so it doesn't lead to temptation. It is for a time. The one reason is that you, together, as one, may devote yourselves to prayer. Marriage is devoting together. The only devotion that exceeds husband and wife is devotion to God. Devote yourselves in agreement to praying to the one you are fully reliant and dependent on. Devote yourselves to the one you were made for. Devote yourselves to worship, worshiping the one who made you in his image, worshiping the one who made your body, worshiping the one who defines marriage, worshiping the one who gives meaning to sex. Devote your body to prayer. Commit to him in order to commit to one another. Love him in order to love one another. We see this exact thing happening in Exodus 19, 9 through 15. Listen to these verses just before God meets with his people to give them the Ten Commandments. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. They consecrated or devoted themselves solely to Yahweh in order to prepare their hearts. This is devotion. This is devotion to our God. Devotion to worshiping him. But Paul continues. After he says this together decision of devoting yourselves for a time to worshiping, to prayer, Paul continues, then what? Come back together again. Display your unity again. Join back together. Give of yourself to one another again. Why? Well, one, this is a model of the unity that we have in marriage. But two, he says, that so that Satan, the father of lies, does not tempt you. He's, he's waiting to pounce like a lion to devour you. 1 Peter 5, 8. Worship through prayer and then worship through this union. We are so prone, so prone to giving ourselves to lesser pleasures like biting into a fruit the God of the universe has told you not to eat in exchange for a joyous relationship with him. It is our nature to cling to the temporary satisfactions instead of what brings eternal joy. We are out of control. Our only definition of self-control is sin control. It is a sin nature indulging in godless desires. Devote to God and to one another in order to cling to what is good. Cling to what God says is good. He made you. He defines marriage and intimacy. Marriage is coming together. Marriage is giving together. Marriage is devoting together. In saying this is by concession in verse 6, Paul is saying that the statement in verse 5 is his suggestion. It is his wisdom. Even though he himself is single, it is his wisdom to take short times to withhold from intimacy with husband or wife in order to devote together to God. Lord, I, spend, I just want to spend a moment on this closing verse, verse 7 that shifts us to what we'll be talking about next week, what Ryan will be preaching on next week. In 7, Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind 
and one of another. Just like in the first six verses, we must not assign words or meaning to Paul, to God's word that isn't there. Many look at this chapter and the remaining verses in the chapter and they say Paul is against marriage. That would run entirely contrary to the rest of Scripture and it would run contrary to Ephesians 5, which Paul wrote. And it even runs contrary to the first six verses we just studied. There's a beautiful truth in this verse. Remember, Paul is responding to the misunderstandings of the Corinthian church. You cannot view this verse or any of the rest of chapter 7 without the foundation of verses 1 and 2 or without the foundation of the rest of Scripture's teaching on marriage and singleness. He builds the case of intimacy within marriage, but follows that he wishes all were single like him. How can he say all that he just said and say, I wish that you were all like me? Paul is saying, he wishes sexual immorality wasn't so massive of a temptation. Paul is saying marriage and singleness are both a gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Listen, Paul is single and he likes it that way. He's single and he, it is his joy. He views it as grace. He doesn't view it as a burden. He wishes all could share in the enjoyment he himself experiences in his singleness and devotion to Christ. He wishes all could experience the same joy he has in the same way that he's experiences it, experiencing it, because he says, this is great, this is awesome, I get to devote myself to God. I get to, to sit here and relish in the grace that I have received through the death and resurrection of Christ. I get to ponder the old man that I was and look at myself today and say, oh, the grace of God. But at the same time, at the same time, Paul understands. He understands some get that same enjoyment in marriage rather than in singleness. He understands that that same gracious gift that he experiences in singleness, some experience that in marriage. So he says both of them are gifts. Listen. I don't know who needs to hear this, but your marital status does not determine your spirituality. God graciously gives a life of singleness or a life of marriage. One is not lesser than the other. We cannot become legalistic in one way or another. God provides grace based on whether he gives a life of singleness or a life of marriage. He provides grace on both avenues. He provides for you. He gives grace. So here's the message in that. Be satisfied in him. Cling to his word. Find this joy that Paul so clearly found. Marriage and singleness are both wonderful gifts from God to teach us and to grow us for our good and his glory. The gift may be different, but the giver is the same. 
the giver who provides grace, and that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. The giver who sent his son to bear our sexual immorality. The giver who sent his son to become sin for us. The, the, the giver who sends his son to redeem our abuse of marriage and singleness. To distort it to be what we want rather than what he says is good. His son redeems our abuse of marriage and singleness. As we continue to study chapter 7, remember, remember that he redeems our failures in marriage and singleness. Paul does not get past the gospel in talking about such issues. He doesn't get past talking about such unity and such grace. If you don't know what this means, or if you have questions about anything that I've said this morning, anything that we've studied, please don't hesitate to come ask. Let me pray.